Railway Children, Part 2. In this episode of Read Me A Story, we continue the adventures of Bobby, Peter and Phyllis, the Railway Children. We hear the amazing story of how they prevented an accident on the railway line and how they found and rescued the boy in the red jumper. Happy listening! They had seen the blossom on the trees in the spring and they knew where to look for wild cherries now that cherry time was here. The trees grew all up and along the rocky face of the cliff out of which the mouth of the tunnel opened. There are all sorts of trees there birches and beeches and baby oaks and hazels and among them some cherry blossom had shone like snow and silver. The mouth of the tunnel was some way from three chimneys so mother let them take their lunch with them in a basket and the basket would do to bring the cherries back in if they found any. She also lent them her silver watch so that they should not be late for tea. Peter's waterbury had taken it into its head not to go since the day when Peter dropped it into the water butt, and they started. When they got to the top of the cutting, they leaned over the fence and looked down to where the railway lines lay at the bottom of what, as Phyllis said, was exactly like a mountain gorge. If it wasn't for the railway at the bottom, it would be as though the foot of man had never been there, wouldn't it? The sides of the cutting were of grey stone, very roughly hewn. Indeed, the top part of the cutting had been a little natural glen that had been cut deeper to bring it down to the level of the tunnel's mouth. Among the, among the rocks, grass and flowers grew, and seeds dropped by birds in the crannies of the stone had taken root and grown into bushes and trees that overhung the cutting. Near the tunnel was a flight of steps leading down to the line, just wooden bars roughly fixed into the earth, a very steep and narrow way, more like a ladder than a stair. We'd better get down, said Peter. I'm sure the cherries would be quite easy to get up from the side of the steps. You remember it was there that we put the cherry blossoms that we put on the rabbit's grave. So they went along the fence towards the little swing gate that is at the top of these steps. And they were almost at the gate when Bobby said, Hush! Stop! What's that? That was a very odd noise indeed. A soft noise, but quite plainly to be heard through the sound of the wind in the tree branches and the hum and whir of the telegraph wires. It was a sort of rustling, whispering sound. As they listened, it stopped, and then it began again. And this time it did not stop, but it grew louder and more rustling and rumbling. Look, cried Peter suddenly, the tree's over there. The tree he pointed out was one of those that have rough grey leaves and white flowers. The berries, when they come, are bright scarlet, and if you pick them, they disappoint you by turning black before you get them home. And as Peter pointed, the tree was moving. Not just the way trees ought to move when the wind blows through them, but all in one piece, as though it were a live creature and were walking down the side of the cutting. It's moving, cried Bobby. Oh, look, and so are the others. It's like the woods in Macbeth. It's magic, said Phyllis breathlessly. I always knew this railway was enchanted. It really did seem a little like magic, for all the trees for about 20 yards of the opposite bank seemed to be slowly walking down towards the railway line. The tree with the grey leaves bringing up the rear like some old shepherd driving a flock of green sheep. What is it? Oh, what is it? said Phyllis. It's much too magic for me. I don't like it. Let's go home. But Bobby and Peter clung fast to the rail and watched breathlessly, and Phyllis made no movement towards going home by herself. The trees moved on and on. Some stones and loose earth fell down and rattled on the railway metals far below. It's all coming down, Peter tried to say, but he found there was hardly any voice to say it with. And indeed, just as he spoke, the great rock on the top of which the walking trees were leaned slowly forward. The trees, ceasing to walk, stood still and shivered. Leaning with the rock, they seemed to hesitate a moment, and then rock and trees and grass and bushes 
with a rushing sound, slipped right away from the face of the cutting and fell on the line with a blundering crash that could have been heard half a mile off. A cloud of dust rose up. Oh, said Peter in awestruck tones, isn't it exactly like when coals come in? If there wasn't any roof to the cellar and you could see down. Look what a great mound it's made, said Bobby. Yes, said Peter slowly. He was still leaning on the fence. Yes, he said again, still more slowly. Then he stood upright. The 11.29 down hasn't gone by yet. We must let them know at the station or there'll be a most frightful accident. Let's run, said Bobby, and began. But Peter cried, come back, and looked at Mother's watch. He was very prompt and businesslike, and his face looked whiter than they had ever seen it. No time, he said. It's two miles away, and it's past eleven. Couldn't we, suggested Phyllis breathlessly, couldn't we climb up a telegraph post and do something to the wires? We don't know how, said Peter. They do it in the war, said Phyllis. I know, I've heard of it. They only cut them, silly, said Peter, and that doesn't do any good. And we couldn't cut them even if we got up, and we couldn't get up. If we had anything red, we could get down on the line and wave it. But the train wouldn't see us till it got round the corner, and then it could see the mound just as well as us, said Phyllis. Better, because it's bigger than us. If we only had something red, Peter repeated, we could go round the corner and wave to the train. We might wave anyway. They'd only think it was just us, as usual. We've raved, waved so often before. Anyway, let's go down. They got down the steep stairs. Bobby was pale and shivering. Peter's face looked thinner than usual. Phyllis was red-faced and damp with anxiety. Oh, how hot I am, she said. And I thought it was going to be cold. I wish we hadn't put on our... She stopped short and then ended in quite a different tone, our flannel petticoats. Bobby turned at the bottom of the stairs. Oh yes, she cried, they're red. Let's take them off. They did, and with the petticoats rolled up under their arms, ran along the railway, skirting the newly fallen mound of stones and rock and earth, and bent crushed twisted trees. They ran at their best pace, Peter led, but the girls were not far behind. They reached the corner that hid the mound from the straight line of railway that ran a half mile without curve or corner. Now, said Peter, taking hold of the largest flannel petticoat. You're not, Phyllis faltered, you're not going to tear them. Shut up, said Peter with brief sternness. Oh yes, said Bobby, tear them into little bits if you like. Don't you see, Phil, if we can't stop the train, there'll be a real live accident with people killed. Oh, horrible. Here, Peter, you'll never tear it through the band. She took the red flannel petticoat from him and tore it off an inch from the band. Then she tore the other in the same way. There, said Peter, tearing in his turn. He divided each petticoat into three pieces. Now we've got six flags. He looked his, at his watch again. And we've got seven minutes... We must have flagstaffs. The knives given to boys are, for some odd reason, seldom of the kind of steel that keeps sharp. The young saplings had to be broken off. Two came up by the roots. The leaves were stripped from them. We must cut holes in the flags and run the sticks through the holes, said Peter. And the holes were cut. The knife was sharp enough to cut flannel with. Two of the flags were set up in heaps of loose stones between the sleepers of the down line. Then Phyllis and Roberta took each a flag and stood ready to wave it as soon as the train came in sight. I shall have the other two myself, said Peter, because it was my idea to wave something red. They were our petticoats, though, Phyllis was beginning, but Bobby interrupted. Oh, what does it matter who waves what, if we can only save the train? Perhaps Peter had not rightly calculated the number of minutes it would take the 11.29 to get from the station to the place where they were, or perhaps the train was late. Anyway, it seemed a very long time that they waited. Phyllis grew impatient. I expect the watch is wrong and the train's gone by, she said. Peter relaxed the heroic attitude he had chosen to show off his two flags 
and Bobby began to feel sick with suspense. It seemed to her that they had been standing there for hours and hours, holding those silly little red flannel flags that no one would ever notice. The train wouldn't care. It would go rushing by them and tear around the corner and go crashing into that awful mound, and everyone would be killed. Her hand grew very cold and trembled so that she could hardly hold the flag. And then came the distant rumble and hum of the metals, and a puff of white steam showed far away along the stretch of line. Stand firm, said Peter, and wave like mad. When it gets to that big furze bush, step back, but go on waving. Don't stand on the line, Bobby. The train came rattling along very fast. They don't see us, they won't see us, it's no good, cried Bobby. The two little flags on the line swayed as the nearing train shook and loosened the heaps of loose stones that held them up. One of them slowly leaned over and fell on the line. Bobby jumped forward and caught it up and waved it. Her hands didn't tremble now. It seemed that the train was coming on as fast as ever. It was very near now. Keep off the line, you silly cuckoo, said Peter fiercely. It's no good, Bobby said again. Stand back, cried Peter, suddenly, and he dragged Phyllis back by the arm. But Bobby cried, not yet, not yet, and waved her two flags right over the line. The front of the engine looked black and enormous. Its voice was loud and harsh. Oh, stop, 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 cried Bobby. No one heard her. At least Peter and Phyllis didn't, for the oncoming, oncoming rush of the train covered the sound of her voice with a mountain of sound. But afterwards she used to wonder whether the engine itself had not heard her. It seemed almost as though it had, for it slackened swiftly, slackened and stopped, not twenty yards from the place where Bobby's two flags waved over the line. She saw the great black engine stop dead, but somehow she could not stop waving the flags. And when the driver and the fireman had got off the engine and Peter and Phyllis had gone to meet them and pour out their excited tale of the awful mound just around the corner, Bobby still waved the flags, but more and more feebly and jerkily. When the others turned towards her, she was lying across the line with her hands flung forward and still gripping the sticks of the little red flags. The engine driver picked her up carried her to the train and laid her on the cushions of a first-class carriage. Gone right off in a faint, he said. Poor little woman, and no wonder. I'll just have a look at this here mound of yours and then we'll run you back to the station and get her seen to. It was horrible to see Bobby lying so white and quiet, with her lips blue and parted. I believe that's what people look like when they're dead, whispered Phyllis. Don't, said Peter sharply. They sat by Bobby on the blue cushions and the train ran back. Before it reached their station, Bobby had sighed and opened her eyes and rolled herself over and began to cry. This cheered the others wonderfully. They'd seen her cry before, but they'd never seen her faint, nor anyone else for that matter. They'd not known what to do when she was fainting, but now she was only crying, they could thump her on the back and tell her not to, just as they always did. And presently, when she'd stopped crying, they were able to laugh at her for being such a coward as to faint. When the station was reached, the three, of, the three were the heroes of an agitated meeting on the platform. The praises they got for their prompt action, their common sense, their ingenuity, were enough to have turned anybody's head. Phyllis enjoyed herself thoroughly. She had never been a real heroine before, and the feeling was delicious. Peter's ears got very red, yet he too enjoyed himself. Only Bobby wished they all wouldn't. She wanted to get away. You'll hear from the company about this, I expect, said the station master. Bobby wished she might never hear of it again. She pulled at Peter's jacket. Oh, come away, come away. I want to go home, she said. So they went, and as they went, station master and porter and guards and driver and firemen and passengers sent up a cheer. Oh, listen, cried Phyllis, that's for us. Yes, said Peter, I say, I am glad I thought about something red and waving it. 
How lucky we did put on our red flannel petticoats, said Phyllis. Bobby said nothing. She was thinking of the horrible mound and the trustful train rushing towards it. And it was us that saved them, said Peter. How dreadful if they'd all been killed, said Phyllis. Wouldn't it, Bobby? We never got any cherries after all, said Bobby. The others thought her rather heartless. For many and many a night after the day when she and Peter and Phyllis had saved the train from wreck by waving their little red flannel flags, Bobby used to wake screaming and shivering, seeing again that horrible mound and the poor dear trustful engine rushing on towards it, just thinking that it was doing its swift duty and that everything was clear and safe. And then a warm thrill of pleasure used to run through her at the remembrance of how she and Peter and Phyllis and the red flannel petticoats had really saved everybody. One morning a letter came. It was addressed to Peter and Bobby and Phyllis. They opened it with enthusiastic curiosity, for they did not often get letters. The letter said, Dear Sir and Ladies, It is proposed to make a small presentation to you in commemoration of your prompt and courageous action in warning the train and thus averting what must, humanly speaking, have been a terrible accident. The presentation will take place at the station at three o'clock on the 30th. If this time and place will be convenient to you, yours faithfully, Jabez Inglewood, Secretary, Great Northern and Southern Railway Company. There had never been a prouder moment in the lives of the three children. They rushed to mother with the letter, and she also felt proud and said so, and this made the children happier than ever. But if the presentation is money, you must say, thank you, but we'd rather not take it, said mother. I'll wash your Indian muslins at once, she added. You must look tidy on an occasion like this. Phil and I can wash them, said Bobby, if you'll iron them, mother. Washing is rather fun. I wonder whether you've ever done it. This particular washing took place in the back kitchen, which had a stone floor and a very big stone sink under its window. Let's put the bath on the sink, said Phyllis. Then we can pretend we're out of doors, washerwoman, like Mother saw in France. But they were washing in the cold river, said Peter, his hands in his pocket, not in hot water. This is a hot river, then, said Phyllis. Lend a hand with the bath, there's a dear. I should like to see a deer lending a hand, said Peter, but he lent his. Now to rub and scrub and scrub and rub, said Phyllis, hopping joyously about as Bobby carefully carried the heavy kettle from the kitchen fire. Oh no, said Bobby, greatly shocked. You don't rub muslin. You put the boiled soap in the hot water and make it all frothy lathery. Then you shake the muslin and squeeze it ever so gently and all the dirt comes out. It's only clumsy things like tablecloths and sheets that have to be rubbed. The lilac and roses outside the window swayed in the soft breeze. It's a nice drying day, that's one thing, said Bobby, feeling very grown up. Oh, I do wonder what wonderful feelings we shall have when we wear the Indian muslin dresses. Yes, yeah, so do I, said Phyllis, shaking and squeezing the muslin in quite a professional manner. Now we squeeze out the soapy water. No, we mustn't twist them and then rinse them. I'll hold them while you and Peter empty the bath and get clean water. A presentation. That means presents, said Peter, as his sisters, having duly washed the pegs and wiped the line, hung up the dresses to dry. Whatever would it be? It might be anything, said Phyllis. What I've always wanted is a baby elephant, but I suppose they wouldn't know that. Suppose it was gold models of the steam engines, said Bobby. Or a big model of the scene of the prevented accident, suggested Peter. With a little model train and dolls dressed like us and the engine driver and fireman and passengers. Do you like, said Bobby, doubtfully, drying her hands on the rough towel that hung on a roller at the back of the scullery door. Do you like us being rewarded for saving a train? Yes, I do, said Peter downrightly. And don't you try to come it over us that you don't like it too, because I know you do. Yes, said Bobby, doubtfully. I know I do, but oughtn't we to be satisfied with just having done it 
and not asking for anything more. Who did we ask for anything more, silly, said her brother. Victoria Cross soldiers don't ask for it, but they're glad enough to get it all the same. Perhaps it'll be medals. Then, when I'm very old indeed, I shall show them to my grandchildren and say, we only did our duty, and they'll be awfully proud of me. You'll have to be married, warned Phyllis, or you don't have any grandchildren. I suppose I shall have to be married some day, said Peter, but it will be an awful bother having her around all the time. I'd like to marry a lady who had trances and only woke up once or twice a year. Just to say you were the light of her life and then go back to sleep again, eh? Yes, that wouldn't be bad, said Bobby. When I get married, said Phyllis, I shall want him to want me to be awake all the time so that I can hear him say how nice I am. I think it would be nice, said Bobby, to marry someone very poor and then you do all the work and he'd love you most frightfully and see the blue wood smoke curling up among the trees from the domestic hearth as he came home from work every night. I say, we've got to answer that letter and say that the time and place will be convenient to us. There's the soap, Peter. We're both as clean as clean. That pink box of writing paper you had on your birthday, Phil. It took some time to arrange what should be said. Mother had gone back to her writing and several sheets of pink paper with scalloped gilt edges and green four-leaved shamrocks in the corner were spoiled before the three had decided what to say. Then each made a copy and signed it with its own name. The three-fold letter ran. Dear Mr Jabez Inglewood, Thank you very much. We did not want to be rewarded, but only to save the train, but we are glad you think so and thank you very much. The time and the place you say will be quite convenient to us. Thank you very much. Your affectionate friend. Then came the name and after it, P.S. Thank you very much. Washing is so much easier than ironing, said Bobby, taking the clean dry dresses off the line. I do love to see things come clean. Oh, I don't know how we shall wait till it's time to know what presentation they're going to present. When at last, it seemed a very long time after, it was the day, the three children went down to the station at the proper time. And everything that happened was so odd that it seemed like a dream. The station master came out to meet them, in his best clothes as Peter noticed at once, and led them into the waiting room where once they had played the advertisement game. It looked quite different now. A carpet had been put down, and there were pots of roses on the mantelpiece and on the window ledges. Green branches stuck up like holly and laurel are at Christmas over the framed advertisement of Cook's Tours and the beauties of Devon and the Paris-Lyon Railway. There were quite a number of people there besides the porter, two or three ladies in smart dresses and quite a crowd of gentlemen in high hats and frock coats, besides everybody who belonged to the station. They recognised several people who had been in the train on the red flannel, flannel petticoat day. Best of all, their own old gentleman was there, and his coat and hat and collar seemed more than ever different from anyone else's. He shook hands with them, and then everybody sat down on chairs, and a gentleman in spectacles, they found out afterwards that he was the district superintendent, began quite a long speech. Very clever indeed. I'm not going to write the speech down, first because you would think it dull, and secondly because it made all the children blush so and get so hot about the ears that I'm quite anxious to get away from this part of the subject. And thirdly, because the gentleman took so many words to say what he had to say that I really haven't time to write them down. He said all sorts of nice things about the children's bravery and presence of mind and when he had done, he sat down, and everyone who was there clapped and said, Here, here. And then the old gentleman got up and said things too. It was very like a prize-giving. And then he called the children one by one by their names, and gave each of them a beautiful gold watch and chain. And inside the watches were engraved, after the name of the watch's new owner, from the directors of the Northern and Southern Railway, in grateful recognition of the courageous and prompt action which averted an accident. The watches were the most beautiful you can possibly imagine 
and each one had a blue leather case to live in when it was at home. You must make a speech now and thank everyone for their kindness, whispered the station master in Peter's ear and pushed him forward. Begin, ladies and gentlemen, he added. Each of the children had already said thank you quite properly. Oh dear, said Peter, but he did not resist the push. Ladies and gentlemen, he said in a rather husky voice. Then there was a pause and he heard his heart beating in his throat. Ladies and gentlemen, he went on with a rush, it's most awfully good of you and we shall treasure the watches all our lives, but really we don't deserve it because what we did wasn't anything really. At least, I mean, it was awfully exciting and what I mean to say, thank you all very, very much. The people clapped Peter more than they had done the district superintendent and then everybody shook hands with them and as soon as politeness would let them, they got away and tore up the hill to the three chimneys with their watches in their hands. It was a wonderful day, the kind of day that very seldom happens to anybody and to most of us not at all. I say, said Bobby, there's to be a paper chase tomorrow. Who? Peter asked. Grammar school. Perks thinks the hare will go along by the line at first. We might go along the cutting. You can see a long way from there. Next morning, Mother let them take their lunch and go out for the day to see the paper chase. If we go to the cutting, said Peter, we shall see the workmen, even if we miss the paper chase. Of course, it had taken some time to get the line clear from the rocks and earth and trees that had fallen on it when the great landslip happened. That was the occasion, you remember, when the three children saved the train from being wrecked by waving six little red flannel petticoat flags. It's always interesting to watch people working especially when they work with such interesting things as spades and picks and shovels and planks and barrows, when they have cindery red fires in iron pots with round holes in them and red lamps hanging near the works at night. Of course, the children were never out at night, but once, at dusk, when Peter had got out of his bedroom skylight onto the roof, he'd seen the red lamps shining far away at the edge of the cutting. The children had often been down to watch the work, and this day the interest of picks and spades and barrows being wheeled along planks completely put the paper chase out of their heads, so that they quite jumped when a loud voice just behind them panted, Let me pass, please. It was the hare, a big-boned, loose-limbed boy with dark hair lying flat on a very damp forehead. The bag of torn paper under his arm was fastened across one shoulder by a strap. The children stood back. The hare ran along the line and the workmen leaned on their picks to watch him. He ran on steadily and disappeared into the mouth of the tunnel. That's against the bylaws, said the foreman. Why worry, said the oldest workman. Live and let live, that's what I always say. Ain't you never been young yourself, Mr Bates? I ought to report him, said the foreman. Why spoil sports, what I always say. Passengers are forbidden to cross the line on any pretense, murmured the foreman doubtfully. He ain't no passenger, said one of the workmen. Nor he ain't crossed the line, not where we could see him do it, said another. Not yet he ain't made no pretenses, said a third. And, said the oldest workman, he's out of sight now. What the eye don't see, the art don't need take no notice of, what I always say. And now, following the track of the hare by the little white blobs of scattered paper, came the hounds. There were thirty of them, and they all came down the steep ladder-like steps by ones and twos and threes and sixes and sevens. Bobby and Phyllis and Peter counted them as they passed. The foremost ones hesitated a moment at the foot of the ladder, then their eyes caught the gleam of scattered whiteness along the line, and they turned towards the tunnel, and by ones and twos and threes and sixes and sevens disappeared in the dark mouth of it. The last one, in a red jersey, seemed to be extinguished by the darkness like a candle that's blown out. They don't know what they're in for, said the foreman. It isn't easy running in the dark. The tunnel takes two or three turns. They'll take a long time to get through, you think, Peter asked. An hour or more, I shouldn't wonder. Then let's cut across the top and see them come out at the other end, said Peter. We shall get there long before they do. The council seemed good and they went. 
they climbed the steep steps from which they had picked the wild cherry blossom for the grave of the little wild rabbit, and reaching the top of the cutting, set their faces towards the hill through which the tunnel was cut. It was stiff work. It's like the Alps, said Bobby breathlessly. Or Andy's, said Peter. It's like Himmy, what's his name? gasped Phyllis. Mount Everlasting. Do let's stop. Stick to it, panted Peter. You'll get your second wind in a minute. Phyllis consented to stick to it, and on they went, running when the turf was smooth and the slope easy, climbing over stones, helping themselves up rocks by the branches of trees, creeping through narrow openings between tree trunks and rocks, and so on and on, up and up, till at last they stood on the very top of the hill where they had so often wished to be. Halt! cried Peter, and threw himself flat on the grass. For the very top of the hill was a smooth turfed tableland, dotted with mossy rocks and little mountain ash trees. Halt! cried Peter, and threw himself flat on the grass. For the very top of the hill was a smooth turfed tableland, dotted with mossy rocks and little mountain ash trees. The girls also threw themselves down flat. Plenty of time, Peter panted. The rest's all downhill. When they were rested enough to sit up and look around them, Bobby cried, Oh, look! What at? said Phyllis. The view, said Bobby. I hate views, said Phyllis. Don't you, Peter? Let's get on, said Peter. But this isn't like a view they take you to in carriages when you're at the seaside, or the sea and sand and bare hills. It's like the coloured counties in one of Mother's poetry books. It's not so dusty, said Peter. Look at the aqueduct straddling slap across the valley like a giant centipede, and then the towns sticking their church spires up out of the trees, like pens out of an inkstand. I think it's more like, there could he see the banners of twelve fair cities shine. I love it, said Bobby. It's worth the climb. The paper chase is worth the climb, said Phyllis, if we don't lose it. Let's get on. It's all downhill now. I said that ten minutes ago, said Peter. Well, I've said it now, said Phyllis. Come on. Loads of time, said Peter. And there was, for when they had got down to the level with the top of the tunnel's mouth, they were a couple of hundred yards out of their reckoning and had to creep along the face of the hill. There was no sign of the hare or the hounds. They've gone long ago, of course, said Phyllis, as they leaned on the brick parapet above the tunnel. Don't think so, said Bobby. But even if they had, it's ripping here, and we shall see the trains come out of the tunnel like dragons out of lairs. We've never seen that from the top side before. No more we have, said Phyllis, partially appeased. It was really a most exciting place to be in. The top of the tunnel seemed ever so much farther from the line than they had expected and it was like being on a bridge, but a bridge overgrown with bushes and creepers and grass and wild flowers. I know the paper chase has gone long ago, said Phyllis, every two minutes, and she hardly knew whether she was pleased or disappointed when Peter, leaning over the parapet, suddenly cried, Look out, here he comes! They all leaned over the sun-warmed brick wall in time to see the hare, going very slowly, come out from the shadow of the tunnel. There now, said Peter. What did I tell you? Now for the hounds. Very soon came the hounds, by ones and twos and threes and sixes and sevens, and they also were going slowly and seemed very tired. Two or three who lagged far behind came out long after the others. There, said Bobby. That's all. Now what shall we do? Go along the Tolgy wood over there and have lunch, said Phyllis. We can see them for miles from up there. Not yet, said Peter. That's not the last. There's the one in the red jersey to come yet. Let's see the last of them come out. But though they waited and waited and waited, the boy in the red jersey did not appear. Oh, let's have lunch, said Phyllis. I've got a pain in my front with being so hungry. You must have missed seeing the red jerseyed one when he came out with the others. But Bobby and Peter agreed that he had not come out with the others. Let's get down to the tunnel mouth, said Peter. Then perhaps we shall see him coming along from the inside. 
I expect he felt Sponchak and rested in one of the manholes. You stay up here and watch, Bob, and when I signal from below, you come down. We might miss seeing him on the way down with all these trees. So the others climbed down and Bobby waited till they signalled to her from the line below and then she too scrambled down the roundabout slippery path among roots and moss till she stepped out between two dogwood trees and joined the others on the line. And still there was no sign of the hound with the red jersey. Oh do, do let's have something to eat, wailed Phyllis. I shall die if you don't and then you'll be sorry. Give her the sandwiches for goodness sake and stop her silly mouth, said Peter, not quite unkindly. Look here, he added, turning to Bobby. Perhaps we'd better have one each too. We may need all our strength. Not more than one, though. There's no time. What? asked Bobby, her mouth already full, for she was just as hungry as Phyllis. Don't you see, replied Peter impressively, that red-jerseyed hound has had an accident. That's what it is. Perhaps even as we speak he's lying with his head on the metals, an unresisting prey to any passing express. Oh, don't try to talk like a book, cried Bobby, bolting what was left of her sandwich. Come on, Phil, keep close behind me, and if a train comes, stand flat against the tunnel wall and hold your petticoats close to you. Give me one more sandwich, pleaded Phyllis, and I will. I'm going first, said Peter. It was my idea. And he went. Of course, you know what going into a tunnel is like. The engine gives a scream and then suddenly the noise of the running, rattling train changes and grows different and much louder. Grown-up people pull up the windows and hold them by the strap. The railway carriage suddenly grows like night, with lamps, of course, unless you're in a slow local train, in which case lamps are not always provided. Then by and by the darkness outside the carriage window is touched by puffs of cloudy whiteness. Then you see a blue light on the walls of the tunnel and the sound of the moving train changes once more and you are out in the good open air again and grown-ups let the straps go. The windows, all dim with the yellow breath of the tunnel, rattle down into their places and you see once more the dip and catch of the telegraph wires beside the line and the straight-cut hawthorn hedges with the tiny baby trees growing up out of them every 30 yards. All of this, of course, is what a tunnel means when you are in a train. But everything is quite different when you walk into a tunnel on your own feet and tread on shifting, sliding stones and gravel on a path that curves downwards from the shiny metals to the wall. Then you see slimy, oozy trickles of water running down the inside of the tunnel and you notice that the bricks are not red or brown as they are at the tunnel's mouth, but dull, sticky, sickly green. Your voice when you speak is quite changed from what it was out in the sunshine, and it's a long time before the tunnel is quite dark. It was not yet quite dark in the tunnel when Phyllis caught at Bobby's skirt, ripping out half a yard of gathers, but no one noticed this at the time. I want to go back, she said. I don't like it. It'll be pitch dark in a minute. I won't go on in the dark. I don't care what you say. I won't. Don't be a silly cuckoo, said Peter. I've got a candle end and matches and... What's that? That was a low humming sound on the railway line. A trembling of the wires beside it. A buzzing, humming sound that grew louder and louder as they listened. It's a train, said Bobby. Which line? Let me go back, cried Phyllis, struggling to get away from the hand by which Bobby held her. Don't be a coward, said Bobby. It's quite safe. Stand back. Come on, shouted Peter, who was a few yards ahead. Quick, manhole! The roar of the advancing train was now louder than the noise you hear when your head is under water in the bath and both taps are running, and you're kicking with your heels against the bath's tin sides. But Peter had shouted for all he was worth, and Bobby heard him. She dragged Phyllis along to the manhole. Phyllis, of course, stumbled over the wires and grazed both her legs, but they dragged her in, and all three stood in the dark, damp, arched recess while the train roared louder and louder. It seemed as if it would deafen them, and in the distance they could see its eyes of fire growing bigger and brighter every instant. 
It is a dragon. I always knew it was. It takes its own shape in here in the dark, shouted Phyllis. But nobody heard her. You see, the train was shouting too, and its voice was bigger than hers. And now, with a rush and a roar and a rattle, and a long dazzling flash of lighted carriage windows, a smell of smoke and a blast of hot air, the train hurtled by, clanging and jangling and echoing in the vaulted roof of the tunnel. Phyllis and Bobby clung to each other. Even Peter caught hold of Bobby's arm, in case she should be frightened, as he explained afterwards. And now, slowly and gradually, the tail lights grew smaller and smaller, and so did the noise, till with one last whiz the train got itself out of the tunnel and silence settled again on its damp walls and dripping roof. Oh, said the children, all together in a whisper. Peter was lighting the candle end with a hand that trembled. Come on, he said, but he had to clear his throat before he could speak in his natural voice. Oh, said Phyllis, if the red-jerseyed one was in the way of the train. We've got to go and see, said Peter. Couldn't we go and send someone from the station, said Phyllis. Would you rather wait here for us, asked Bobby severely. And of course, that settled the question. So the three went on into the deeper darkness of the tunnel. Peter led, holding his candle end high to light the way. The grease ran down his fingers and some of it right up his sleeve. He found a long streak from wrist to elbow when he went to bed that night. It was not more than a 150 yards from the spot where they had stood while the train went by that Peter stood still, shouted, Hello! and then went on much quicker than before. When the others caught him up, he stopped and he stopped within a yard of what they'd come into the tunnel to look for. Phyllis saw a gleam of red and shut her eyes tight. There, by the curved pebbly down line, was the red jerseyed hound. His back was against the wall, his arms hung limply by his sides, and his eyes were shut. Was the red blood? Is he all killed? asked Phyllis, screwing her eyelids more tightly together. Killed? Nonsense, said Peter. There's nothing red about him except his jersey. He's only fainted. What on earth are we to do? Can we move him? asked Bobby. I don't know, he's a big chap. Suppose we bathe his forehead with water. No, I know we haven't any, but milk's just as wet. There's a whole bottle. Yes, said Peter, and they rub people's hands, I believe. They burn feathers, I know, said Phyllis. What's the good of saying that when we haven't any feathers? As it happens, said Phyllis, in a tone of exasperated triumph, I've got a shuttlecock in my pocket, so there. And now Peter rubbed the hands of the red-jerseyed one. Bobby burned the feathers of the shuttlecock one by one under his nose. Phyllis splashed warmish milk on his forehead, and all three of them kept on saying, as fast and as earnestly as they could, Oh, look up, speak to me, for my sake, speak! The children said the words over and over again to the unconscious hound in a red jersey who sat with closed eyes and pale face against the side of the tunnel. Wet his ears with milk, said Bobby. I know they do it to people that faint, with eau de cologne, but I expect milk's just as good. So they wetted his ears, and some of the milk ran down his neck under the jersey. It was very dark in the tunnel. The candle end Peter had carried, and which now burned on a flat stone, gave hardly any light at all. Oh, do look up, said Phyllis, for my sake. I believe he's dead. For my sake, repeated Bobby. No, he isn't. For any sake, said Peter, come out of it. And he shook the sufferer by the arm. And then the boy in the red jersey sighed and opened his eyes and shut them again and said in a very small voice, chuck it. Oh, he's not dead, said Phyllis. I knew he wasn't. And she began to cry. What's up? I'm all right, said the boy. Drink this, said Peter firmly, thrusting the nose of the milk bottle into the boy's mouth. The boy struggled and some of the milk was upset before he, get, he could get his mouth free to say, What is it? It's milk, said Peter. Fear not, you are in the hands of friends. Phil, you stop bleating this minute. Do drink it, said Bobby gently. It'll do you good. 
So he drank, and the three stood by without speaking to him. Let him be a minute, said Peter. He'll be all right as soon as the milk begins to run like fire through his veins. He was. I'm better now, he announced. I remember all about it. He tried to move, but the movement ended in a groan. Bother, I believe I've broken my leg, he said. Did you tumble down? asked Phyllis, sniffing. Of course not, I'm not a kiddie, said the boy indignantly. It was one of those beastly wires tripped me up, and when I tried to get up again I couldn't stand, so I sat down. Gee, Willikins, it does hurt, though. How did you get here? We saw you all go into the tunnel, and then we went across the hill to see you all come out. And the others did, all but you, and you didn't. So we are a rescue party, said Peter with pride. You've got some pluck, I will say, remarked the boy. Oh, that's nothing, said Peter with modesty. Do you think you could walk if we helped you? I could try, said the boy. He did try, but he could only stand on one foot. The other dragged in a very nasty way. Here, let me sit down. I feel like dying, said the boy. Let go of me, let go, quick. He lay down and closed his eyes. The others looked at each other by the dim light of the little candle. What on earth, said Peter. Look here, said Bobby, quickly. You must go and get help. Go to the nearest house. Yes, that's the only thing, said Peter. Come on. If you take his feet and Phil and I take his head, we could carry him to the manhole. They did it. It was perhaps as well for the sufferer that he had fainted again. Now, said Bobby, I'll stay with him. You take the longest bit of candle and I'll be quick for this won't burn long. I don't think Mother would like me leaving you, said Peter doubtfully. Let me stay and you and Phil go. No, no, said Bobby. You and Phil go and lend me your knife. I'll try to get his boot off before he wakes up again. I hope it's all right what we're doing, said Peter. Of course it's right, said Bobby impatiently. What else would you do? Leave him here all alone because it's dark? Nonsense. Hurry up, that's all. So they hurried up. Bobby watched their dark figures and the little light of the little candle with an odd feeling of having come to the end of everything. She knew now, she thought, what nuns who were bricked up alive in convent walls felt like. Suddenly she gave herself a little shake. Don't be a silly little girl, she said. She was always very angry when anyone called her a little girl, even if the adjective that went first was not silly, but nice or good or clever. And it was only when she was very angry with herself that she allowed Roberta to use that expression to Bobby. She fixed the little candle end on a broken brick near the red jerseyed boy's feet. Then she opened Peter's knife. It was always hard to manage. A half penny was generally needed to get it open at all. This time Bobby somehow got it open with her thumbnail. She broke the nail and it hurt horribly. Then she cut the boy's boot lace and got the boot off. She tried to pull off his stocking, but his leg was dreadfully swollen and it didn't seem to be the proper shape. So she cut the stocking down, very slowly and carefully. It was a brown knitted stocking and she wondered who had knitted it and whether it was the boy's mother and whether she was feeling anxious about him and, and how she would feel when he was brought home with his leg broken. When Bobby had got the stocking off and saw the poor leg, she felt as though the tunnel was growing darker and the ground felt unsteady, and nothing seemed quite real. Silly girl, said Roberta to Bobby, and felt better. The poor leg, she told herself. It ought to have a cushion. Ah! She remembered the day when she and Phyllis had torn up their red flannel petticoats to make a danger signal to stop the train and prevent an accident. Her flannel petticoat today was white, but it would be quite as soft as a red one. She took it off. Oh, what useful things flannel petticoats are, she said. The man who invented them ought to have a statue directed to him. And she said it aloud, because it seemed that any voice, even her own, would be a comfort in that darkness. What ought to be directed? Who to? asked the boy suddenly and very feebly. Oh, said Bobby, now you're better. Hold your teeth and don't let it hurt too much. Now. 
She'd folded the petticoat and, lifting his leg, laid it on cushion of folded flannel. Don't faint again, please don't, said Bobby, as he groaned. She hastily wetted her handkerchief with milk and spread it over the poor leg. Oh, that hurts, cried the boy, shrinking. Oh, no, it doesn't. It's nice, really. What's your name, said Bobby? Jim. Mine's Bobby. But you're a girl, aren't you? Yes, my long name's Roberta. I say, Bobby. Yes. Wasn't there some more of you just now? Yes, Peter and Phil. That's my brother and sister. They've gone to get someone to carry you out. What rum names, all boys. Yes, I wish I was a boy, don't you? I think you're all right as you are. I didn't mean that. I meant, don't you wish you were a boy? But of course you are, without wishing. You're just as brave as a boy. Why didn't you go with the others? Somebody had to stay with you, said Bobby. Tell you what, Bobby, said Jim. You're a brick. Shake. He reached out a red jerseyed arm and Bobby squeezed his hand. I won't shake it, she explained, because it would shake you and that would shake your poor leg and that would hurt. Have you got a hanky? I don't expect I have. He felt in his pocket. Yes, I have. What for? She took it and wetted it with milk and put it on his forehead. That's jolly, he said. What's it for? Milk, said Bobby. We haven't any water. You're a jolly good little nurse, said Jim. I do it for mothers sometimes, said Bobby. Not milk, of course, but scent or vinegar and water. I say, I must put the candle out now, because there mayn't be enough of the other one to get you out by. By George, he said, you think of everything. Bobby blew. Out went the candle. You have no idea how black velvety the darkness was. I say, Bobby, said a voice through the blackness, aren't you afraid of the dark? Not... Not very, that is. Let's hold hands, said the boy. And it was really rather good of him because he was like most boys of his age and hated all material tokens of affection, such as kissing and holding of hands. He called all such things pourings and detested them. The darkness was more bearable to Bobby now that her hand was held in the large rough hand of the red-jerseyed sufferer. And he, holding her little smooth hot paw, was surprised to find that he did not mind it so much as he expected. She tried to talk, to amuse him, and take his mind off his sufferings. But it is very difficult to go on talking in the dark. And presently they both found themselves in silence, only broken now and then by a... You all right, Bobby? Oran. I'm afraid it's hurting you most awfully, Jim. I am so sorry. And it was very cold. Peter and Phyllis tramped down the long way of the tunnel towards daylight, the candle grease dripping over Peter's fingers. There were no accidents, unless you count Phyllis's catching her frock on a wire and tearing a long jagged slit in it and tripping over her bootlace when it came undone or going down on her hands and knees, all four of which were grazed. There's no end to this tunnel, said Phyllis. And indeed, it did seem very, very long. Stick to it, said Peter. Everything has an end, and you'll get to it if you only keep on. Which is quite true, if you come to think of it, and a useful thing to remember in seasons of trouble, such as measles, arithmetic, impositions, and those times when you're in disgrace and feel as though no one would ever love you again, and you could never, never again love anybody. Hooray, said Peter suddenly. There's the end of the tunnel. Looks just like a pinhole in a bit of black paper, doesn't it? The pinhole got larger. Blue lights lay along the sides of the tunnel. The children could see the gravel way that lay in front of them. The air grew warmer and sweeter. Another twenty steps and they were out in the good glad sunshine with the green trees on both sides. Phyllis drew a long breath. I'll never go into a tunnel again as long as ever I live, she said. Not if there are twenty hundred thousand million hounds inside with red jerseys and their legs broken. Don't be a silly cuckoo, said Peter as usual. You'd have to. I think it was very brave and good of me, said Phyllis. Not it, said Peter. You didn't go because you were brave, but because Bobby and I aren't skunks. 
Now, where's the nearest house, I wonder? You can't see anything here for the trees. There's a roof over there, said Phyllis, pointing down the line. That's the signal box, said Peter. And you know you're not allowed to speak to signalmen on duty. It's wrong. I'm not near so afraid of doing wrong as I was of going into that tunnel, said Phyllis. Come on. And she started to run along the line. So Peter ran too. When they got to the signal box, they told the signalman about the boy in the tunnel with the red jersey and a broken leg. Well, said the man, I don't see as I can do anything. I can't leave the box. You might tell us where to go after someone who isn't in a box, though, said Phyllis. There's Bridgeton's farm over yonder, where you see the smoker coming up through the trees, said the man. Well, goodbye then, said Peter. When the farm men, led by Peter and Phyllis and carrying a hurdle, covered with horse cloths, reached the manhole in the tunnel, Bobby was fast asleep and so was Jim. Worn out with the pain, the doctor said afterwards. Where does he live? the bailiff from the farm asked, when Jim had been lifted onto the hurdle. In Northumberland, answered Bobby. I'm at school at Maidbridge, said Jim. I suppose I've got to get back there somehow. Seems to me the doctor ought to have a look in first, said the bailiff. Oh, bring him up to our house, said Bobby. It's only a little way by the road. I'm sure Mother would say we ought to. Will your ma like you bringing home strangers with broken legs? I know she'd say we ought, said Bobby. All right, said the bailiff. You ought to know what your ma would like. I wouldn't take it upon me to fetch him up to our place without I ask the missus first, and they call me the master too. Are you sure your mother won't mind, whispered Jim. Certain, said Bobby. Then we're to take him up to three chimneys, said the bailiff. Of course, said Peter. Then my lad shall nip up to doctors on his bike and tell him to come down there. Now, lads, now, lads lift him quiet and steady. One, two, three. Thus it happened that Mother, writing away for dear life at a story about a duchess, a designing villain, a secret passage and a missing will, dropped her pen as her workroom door burst open and turned to see Bobby's hatless and red with running. Oh, Mother, she cried, do come down. We found a hound in a red jersey in the tunnel and he's broken his leg and they're bringing him home. They ought to take him to the vet, said Mother with a worried frown. I really can't have a lame dog here. He's not a dog, really. He's a boy, said Bobby, between laughing and choking. Then he ought to be taken home to his mother. His mother's dead, said Bobby, and his father's in Northumberland. Oh, mother, you will be nice to him. I told him I was sure you'd want us to bring him home. You always want to help everybody. Mother smiled, but she sighed too. It is nice that your children should believe you willing to open house and heart to any and everyone who needs help. But it is rather embarrassing sometimes too when they act on their belief. Oh well, said Mother, we must make the best of it. When Jim was carried in, dreadfully white and with set lips whose red had faded to a horrid bluey violet colour, Mother said, I am glad you brought him here. Now, Jim. Let's get you comfortable in bed before the doctor comes. And Jim, looking at her kind eyes, felt a little warm, comforting flush of new courage. It'll hurt rather, won't it, he said. I don't mean to be a coward. You won't think I'm a coward if I faint again, will you? I really and truly don't do it on purpose, and I do hate to give you all this trouble. Don't you worry, said Mother. It's you that have the trouble, you poor dear, not us. And she kissed him, just as if he'd been Peter. We love to have you here, don't we, Bobby? Yes, said Bobby, and she saw by her mother's face how right she had been to bring home the wounded hound in the red jersey. It was soon after breakfast that a knock came at the door. The children were hard at work cleaning the brass candlesticks in honour of Jim's visit. That'll be the doctor, said Mother. I'll go. Shut the kitchen door. You're not fit to be seen. But it wasn't the doctor. They knew that by the voice and by the sound of the boots that went upstairs. They did not recognise the sound of the boots, but everyone was certain that they'd heard the voice before. There was a longish interval. The boots and the voice did not come down again. Who can it possibly be? They kept on asking themselves and each other. 
Perhaps, said Peter at last, Dr Forrest has been attacked by highwaymen and left for dead, and this is the man he's telegraphed to take his place. Mrs Viney said he had a local tenant to do his work when he went for a holiday, didn't you, Mrs Viney? I did so, my dear, said Mrs Viney from the back kitchen. He's fallen down in a fit, more likely, said Phyllis, all human aid despaired of, and this is his man come to break the news to mother. Nonsense, said Peter briskly. Mother wouldn't have taken the man up into Jim's bedroom. Why should he? Listen, the door's opening. Now they'll come down. I'll open the door a crack. He did. It's not listening, he replied indignantly to Bobby's scandalised remarks. Nobody in their senses would talk secrets on the stairs. And Mother can't have secrets to talk with Dr Forrest's stable man. And you said it was him. Bobby called mother's voice they opened the kitchen door and mother leaned over the stair railing jim's grandfather has come she said wash your hands and faces and then you can see him he wants to see you the bedroom door shut again there now said peter fancy is not even thinking of that let's have some hot water mrs viney i'm as black as your hat the three were indeed dirty for the stuff you clean brass candlesticks with is very far from cleaning to the cleaner. They were still busy with soap and flannel when they heard the boots and the voice come down the stairs and go into the dining room. And when they were clean, though still damp, because it takes such a long time to dry your hands properly and they were very impatient to see the grandfather, they filed into the dining room. Mother was sitting in the window seat and in the leather-covered armchair that father always used to sit in at the other house, sat their own old gentleman. Well, I never did, said Peter, even before he said, how do you do? He was, as he explained afterwards, too surprised even to remember that there was such a thing as politeness, much less, less to practice it. It's our own old gentleman, said Phyllis. Oh, it's you, said Bobby. And then they remembered themselves and their manners and said, how do you do, very nicely. This is Jim's grandfather, said Mother. How splendid, said Peter. That's just exactly like a book, isn't it, Mother? It is rather, said Mother, smiling. Things do happen in real life that are rather like books sometimes. I'm so awfully glad it is you, said Phyllis. When you think of the tons of old gentlemen there are in the world, it might have been almost anyone. I say, though, said Peter, you're not going to take Jim away, though, are you? Not at present, said the old gentleman. Your mother has most kindly consented to let him stay here. I thought of sending a nurse, but your mother is good enough to say that she will nurse him herself. But what about her writing, said Peter, before anyone could stop him? There won't be anything for him to eat if Mother doesn't write. That's all right, said Mother hastily. The old gentleman looked very kindly at Mother. I see, he said, you trust your children and confide in them. Of course, said Mother. Then I may tell them of our little arrangement, he said. Your mother, my dears, has consented to give up writing for a little while and to become a matron of my hospital. Oh, said Phyllis blankly. And shall we have to go away from Three Chimneys and the railway and everything? No, no, darling, said Mother hurriedly. The hospital is called Three Chimneys Hospital, said the old gentleman. And my unlucky Jim's the only patient, and I hope he'll continue to be so. Your mother will be matron, and there'll be a hospital staff of a housemaid and a cook. Till Jim's well. And then we'll go, will Mother go on writing again, asked Peter. We shall see, said the old gentleman with a slight, swift glance at Bobby. Perhaps something nice may happen, and she won't have to. I love my writing, said Mother very quickly. I know, said the old gentleman. Don't be afraid that I'm going to try to interfere. But one never knows. Very wonderful and beautiful things do happen, don't they? And we live most of our lives in the hope of them. I may come and see the boy again? Surely, said Mother. And I don't know how to thank you for making it possible for me to nurse him. Dear boy. The old gentleman rose. I'm so glad, said Peter, that you're going to keep him, mother. Take care of your mother, my dears, said the old gentleman. She's a woman in a million.
Yes, isn't she, whispered Bobby. God bless her, said the old gentleman, taking both mother's hands. God bless her. Aye, and she shall be blessed. Dear me, where's my hat? So there we'll leave Bobby, Peter and Phyllis. I hope you've enjoyed these extracts from the Railway Children, hearing about their amazing adventures. Why not borrow a copy of the book from your local library and follow their encounters with the barge people and Perks the porter? Discover why father had to leave so suddenly and how the story ends. Thanks for listening to Read Me A Story. Tune in next time.